Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, a fortnightly discussion all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bulmore, I'll be your host for the day and I'm joined this afternoon by Nicholas Coleridge, the chairman of both Condé Nast and the Victoria and Albert Museum. For many years, Nicholas has been the talisman of the world's largest magazine publisher. As a former editor of several high-profile magazines and the departing managing director of Condé Nast, Nicholas knows the industry from cover to cover and may even be able to predict the next instalment in its turbulent modern history. In today's episode, Nicholas discusses his greatest journalistic scoops and stunts, what not to do if you want a job at Condé Nast, and why magazines are best enjoyed in the bath. Nicholas, thanks so much for joining us. It's very exciting to have you here for all the obvious reasons, but for one quite selfish one, is that I love magazines. I write for one, and I love the feel of them, the smell of them, and you've been kind of the magazine man for the last 25 years at the top of Condé Nast, which is the biggest name in magazines. But do you still love them as much now as you did when you started out? Yes. The answer is that I do. And one of the kind of joys of my life over the last quarter century has been that what feels like every other day or every day, new, fresh supplies of magazines were delivered to my desk. And I opened them with extraordinary curiosity. I haven't lost that at all. I think if you were a actor or something, when that moment when the curtain goes back, yeah. I have that feeling with, with magazines. Kind of butterflies in the stomach. Well, certainly a great sense of curiosity yeah. and excitement. Um, and I think I've always tried to read them with from sort of two angles at once. One is from a professional point of view. Mm. Do I think that this issue is up to scratch? Am I excited by it in in the way that it's designed and the technical side of it? And then I also read it like a normal reader. So when a new issue of Vanity Fair or Tatler or GQ arrives on my desk, I I know that it's going to have information in that I want. I'm excited by the ink on paper, by the smell that comes off a new magazine. There is a very exactly. distinct smell of paper, sometimes tinged with fragrance and scent. <laughs> and uh, it feels like an extraordinary treat and a way to receive information that is very attractive. Why but, is that? Is it kind of because it's curated and it's got a finite end? It's not infinite like the internet? Yes, I think it's exactly what it is. I think it's like putting on a show where the editor has indeed had to curate and to edit, actually. Um, It's not just more is the merrier. Mm. Choices have been made to... And I like the way also with monthly magazines that, you know, some issues work very well and everything goes right from the minute you start editing it and putting it together you get the interviews you want, the photographs yeah. that you want come out well. The, um, the, the, the contributors and writers you ask to write something write well. They're on top mm. form. Some issues, everything goes wrong. Okay. The, the cover star suddenly becomes un- unavailable. The photographer that you sent along yeah. had his finger across the lens throughout. <laughs> or, even more annoyingly, decided on a whim to photograph it all in black and white when wow. you desperately needed colour for that particular issue. And so it is very, very much like putting on a show and there's nothing you can do about it when it comes out. It was either a five-star cracker of a success yeah. or you know in your heart of hearts this one 
slightly missed the mark. Um, and that is what I think makes it makes it very interesting. Yeah. I love the way that magazines have their own very clear DNA running through them. And that when you pick up uh, different titles, they should, if they're on form, they should have a different, a, a very distinct personality of their own. And there should be a way of writing and an attitude yeah. which you see in the headlines and in the captioning. A top editor is on top of all of these matters. And the tone permeates every part of the issue. So when you're reading different glossy magazines, you're actually reading them, I find, in very different... You actually become a different person to a degree, or at least they're appealing to different parts yeah. of your personality. When I read GQ, which is one of the ones that, that we do... <laughs> I find myself being very interested in the suiting, in menswear. I like the, you know, the girly stories. I like those articles about how to fire your girlfriend and <laughs> how to find a new one and um, places you might want to go to dinner if you're a young, cool guy around town. And then you put that one down and you pick up, say, Tatler, yeah. and you're in another world. It's a parallel world to the GQ world. There's sometimes some overlap, but not really, not really. It's a different cast of characters, and it's yeah. full of it girls, and the sensibility of the magazine is different, and it's written uh, in a, with a different tone, and it comes from a different place. Yeah. And I think that when a magazine is on form, uh, that is precisely what it does. When a new Tatler comes up. I like to read it in the bath. Um, I like to, I read a lot of magazines in the bath. Um, yeah. I find it very convenient. It is, of course, something that you can't do with a laptop. No, I quite. mean, you can if you have, um, <laughs> sort of theoretically you can. But actually, I've always found that balancing a laptop either on my knees in a bath or on the <laughs> bath rack, not satisfactory. No. Whereas a magazine, it's highly satisfactory. Yeah. And I like to have right up the top hot water and then you open <laughs> up the new Tatler and you are in a world yeah. that doesn't really exist. It's a right. sort of invented um, world um, that <laughs> is highly appealing in some ways Absolutely. in which all of the girls are blonde and beautiful and right. it girls and... Um, and nearly always called, you know, the Honourable Lavinia Trout or something. <laughs> and you kind of wish you knew them. Yeah. And um, however lucky one's been in one's life, somehow Tatler keeps you on your toes because the houses are always more beautiful and the yeah. girls are more, everyone's having more fun than <laughs> you. It was like, in, in, it was the first social network, really, Tatler. Absolutely. Estab 1709. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it predated the launch of Facebook Certainly. by <laughs> several centuries. Tatler's a very interesting one, really, isn't it? Because although it's a very unique uh, take on the world, it's kind of commercially been up and down and all over the place. I think it's bankrupted seven owners or something yes. across the years. Um, and you worked there almost at the start of your career, didn't you? I did. I, it was my first job after Cambridge. I had um, done, I'd worked for a lot on the magazine Harper's and Queen, as it was yeah. then called, which has now morphed into more of a fashion title as Harper's Bazaar. But um, Tatler was the first full-time job I had. And it had a very famous editor, Tina Brown, had just taken over and I started working on her team. She was very demanding, very, very clever, 
very clever editor. When you say demanding, do you mean long hours or do you mean she wanted more better stories out of you? What was she? More stories, better stories, yeah. um, funnier stories, okay. edgier stories, <laughs> yeah. stories that um, betrayed the person you were interviewing, oh, stories God. that caused mischief and yeah. trouble. Such a fun job as a first job. Did you did you uni. cause mischief? What was the, the most mischievous thing? Oh, you enormous did? amount. We did so many stories in those days. You know, Tatler was pretending in those days that it sold thirty thousand copies, <laughs> but it wasn't audited. And I think it was printing about four thousand copies. Wow. So you can see the impossibility of, of <laughs> selling thirty thousand. And it was a mission to try and get attention <clears throat> on this very old, at that point failing title. Yeah. Um, by and but with with very few resources to do it, very little money, very um, difficult to hire that in the early days outside contributors because mm. we couldn't afford to pay them. I was reminded, you know, I thought of something the other day um, that about my interview with Tina. Yeah, I, I went to. She was only twenty seven at the time, so everyone was very young, and I went to see her in the house that she shared with her. Boyfriend, now husband, Harry Evans, Sir Harry mm. Evans, the great newspaper journalist, and laid out on her kitchen table were lots of photographs taken at a party, um, a dance two weeks earlier at Beaver Castle. And she was looking at and she said, any idea who any of these chinless people are? <laughs> and I said, well, strangely enough, I was actually at that party, so I do know who they were, and we did some captioning. And then she said... Headline. I need a headline from you. And I knew that it was a test. Of course. And I said, Saturday Night Beaver. And this was a sort of <laughs> perfect headline for the time because yeah. the film Saturday Night Fever was still very much in, yeah. still very current. And, you know, it was an almost perfect, I can see now, headline because it's one of those headlines that would only be understood and only make sense if you knew that Beaver Castle is pronounced Beaver yeah. and not Belvoir. Absolutely. And so, therefore, it would be entirely alienating um, yeah. to um, <laughs> to half the readers who wouldn't have a clue. Of course. Um, and that, of course, was very pleasing. Yeah. Since, um, and you got the job off the back of that. Anyway. I did, yes. And I started working for her about two weeks, two weeks later. Yeah. And it was a very, very enjoyable three years. And it taught me, really, how a small team of people can produce something good where I'd worked before at Harpers and Queen, which was the magazine that I later went on to, to edit, it was a much bigger, more profitable, more accomplished, more professional, yeah. more systems-driven um, magazine, which, uh, which made many millions of pounds a year in those, in those days. Um, but it's very important, I think, to work, to do all of the jobs on the way up, to write okay. headlines, to... To, to do captions, to know how to edit a piece, because you never know when it might come yeah, useful. absolutely. Do you ever miss those kind of mischievous young days when you were out trying to get a story? Well, I don't think I've completely lost my sense of mischief. There was an article you asked me uh, which about what kind of articles I used to write for Tatler in those days. And I remember one that was sort of so absurdly mischievous. It was called Villa Bodies, like a pun on the book Vile Bodies, ah, Villa no. Bodies. And it was about the 30 nicest and the 30 worst private villas in the world. Wow. And I cannot tell you how much 
how many complaints there were. Yeah. People were completely enraged. How did you when, pick the worst ones? Oh, honestly, just in a very sort of light way, okay. just by asking around. And then it had two <laughs> paragraphs just saying why each one was yeah. terrible. Yeah. And all the owners kept ringing up and saying, but you've never even been to my villa. <laughs> and furthermore, you yeah. never will. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about that stunt journalism, do you think we're kind of missing some of that now in British journalism? Certainly in magazine journalism. There's not enough mischief not enough humour, maybe, not enough satire. It's funny that magazines do sometimes have a tendency to become rather serious. Yeah. And I don't quite know why it is. Well, actually, I do know why it is. Um, okay. Well, at least I've got a theory on why it might be. I think that with the big celebrity interviews, the power of PRs has become much greater than it yeah. ever was before. Why? Because the talent um, is what really brings... Yes. And you, you can't now... Get the um, you can't now get the celebrities to be interviewed unless the PR is pretty certain that you're going to um, not yeah. sew them up or diss them in some kind of way. And although I don't think that means that you can't get interesting copy, because actually I think you very often can, yeah. but it does make it more difficult because the writers know this. They know that if they were to write something that was extremely teasing about whoever it was, Cameron Diaz um, yeah. or whomever, that PR will never, ever again, publicist will never, ever again let you yeah. have one of their stars. And the same thing happens for the magazine that if you want to have celebrities on the cover of your magazine, if you're doing specially taken photographs, mm. which Condé Nast is, um, then you're not going to get the, that yeah, collaboration. Of um, I think there's also a kind of seriousness that creeps into a certain kind of article, particularly in the arts side, right. where people become very reverent toward, and res over-respectful to the people that they're interviewing. And we've all read, and I personally hate them, those kind of articles where somebody writes 2,000 words mm. about an actor and oh, the God. sort of whole middle half of it is just full of a sort of resume of their CV yeah. and you see many names of movies and plays in italics and a sort of shutter comes down in my mind and I know that I don't want to, to read this. <laughs> this, of course, is the difference between a good journalist that you want to read mm. and an average writer who you might want to read if the subject interests you. Of course. I mean, there are some writers, as we all know, that you would read on any subject. Whatever they write yeah. about, I'm going to read it <laughs> because you know it's going to be very well crafted and you know that it's going to have a sort of life force and an energy inside it mm. that, that propels you forward to read the next sentence. You're like, oh, what are they going to say next? What are they next going to tell me? Yeah. And some journalism, honestly, you read, you come across articles, don't you, where you sort of feel that if the line, ring this telephone number mm. and you will get £50, were buried three quarters of the yeah. way through, um, <laughs> the magazine or newspaper wouldn't yeah. need to set aside very much money to cover the, to the, the hotline Yeah, calls. absolutely. What's the sign of a very, very good young person? <laughs> <laughs> that they've read the magazines for, of the company that they're okay. coming in to talk yeah. to, that they have a strong view on which of the magazines they like and that are interested in, that yeah. they have some opinion on the articles that they've read, that they show uh, quite a lot of knowledge of what's been in the last six issues of Vogue or House and Garden or World of Endearers or whatever 
it is. Then you get another kind of person um, who would come in and they're very nice and they're sort of sweet, slightly droopy people. <laughs> and you say, and, and I say, look, on the shelf here, there are the 14 magazines that we produce yeah. in in um London here from this office, which of the 14 are your two favorite? And also, let me ask you, are you interested in being more on the editorial side? Do you want to be a journalist? Or are you more interested in the marketing and mm. advertising side? And they reply, oh, well, I like them all, really. I mean, well, I don't see all of them. But um, yeah, I mean, mummy gets house and garden and that's like really she really loves that and i sometimes see tatler and um <laughs> well vogue well i'm you know I, I can't really afford expensive clothes so i some but it's very nice to look at and uh and uh, i don't know actually I'd, i mean i'd be interested in anything actually yeah and your heart slightly falls because you know that you're not looking at the next Anna Winter, and uh, <laughs> yeah. and 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 you, and you slightly think, no, don't do that. As well as the chairman of Condé Nast, you're the chairman of the Victoria and Albert Museum. Did you have a great affinity for museums before? It seems they're in similar worlds, but not entirely. Well, they're they're rather like two overlapping Venn diagrams, as yeah. a matter of fact. As I discovered very early on when I. First got involved in the VNA. I was on the joined the board about four years ago and became um, chairman uh, two years ago. Uh, well, what I discovered very early on is that the keepers and curators who run the big departments mm. of, as it were, fashion or um, ceramics or yeah. English furniture or paintings, have a huge amount, a lot in common with the top editors, actually. Because they're running, they're the experts in their field. They're running niche departments. They're somewhat competitive internally with each yeah. other. Um, they are very protective of their autonomy, and they're very clever. I mean, they know all about their subject. They're, the, mm. the, they're in, very often at the VNA. They're the most expert people in the whole country, yeah. and they've spent their life. Fight wanting to be that person, they want to be the keeper of um, yeah. of 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 um, this or that, the keeper of performance or etc. Um, so that's very similar. In my magazine life, we've always worried about circulation. Every Friday night, I got an email that had all the circulations of how many copies we'd sold of each title, and my weekend would be ruined if one of them seemed to be doing particularly badly because yeah. I would be slightly worrying about it and thinking about it and dwelling on it. Um, at the VNA, it's all about visitor numbers. Right. How many people have come to see the Pink Floyd exhibition? How many have been to see Balenciaga? How many have come to see our current show on Plywood or the big show on um, opera, which is just opening? Um, how many people are coming to see all of these Things. And then you've got exactly the same commercial proposition that mm. at Condé Nast, it's publishers raising the money at, at the Victorian Albert. It's a big development team. It's fascinating. There's a thousand people nearabouts work wow. at the VNA. We're so opening, more than Condé Nast in the UK. Uh, same, very, 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 very similar, similar. Yeah. size. Um, very similar. Um, similar sort of turnover, similar um, types of people. Big, a few differences, though. 
One, it's a it's a national museum. Mm. Um, four million people come a year. Secondly, like Condé Nast, actually, it's in expansion mode. So we're building a new museum in Dundee. We're building a new museum in Sheku in China. We're building wow. a new museum on the Olympic Park, um, yeah. right up by Zaha Hadid's aquatic center. So there's an awful lot of big projects, and and of course we belong to the government. Yeah, um, that changes things. So um, my boss is, um, in theory at least, Mrs. May, and probably my more immediate boss is the Secretary of State for Culture, yes, Media, and Sport. Although we're run. As an arm's length body, as they call it, the British Museum, the National Gallery, yeah. the Tate, and ourselves and some others, um, we, we're not supervised by government. No. We're 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 given a quite a lot of money by government annually to run it, and then we have to raise a lot more, and um, and as and we report in from time yeah. to time, and they trust us not to screw it up too badly. And a museum's under. The same kind of pressures that magazines are under in there's a threat from digital media and, and changing tastes? No, so far. Um, it's quite an interesting thing that we're obviously digitizing. The museum is digitizing everything that we own. We own 2,300,000 pieces, yeah. of which only a proportion are on show in the museum. Where are the rest? In the bowels of the... They're in a, in a storage yeah. place in Hammersmith. And, uh, and, they, and they get brought in from time to time. Think displays change. Things come. Scholars study them. They're yeah. the national archives of Indian art and of African art and all of that. Um, so we're digitizing it to make everything available to everybody. Um, there's an interesting thing going on. We're all leading more and more screen-based existences mm -hmm. Um, where we spend probably more time alone than we did in earlier times. Even though we're connected superficially with one another, and you can put up a picture of yourself looking sort of fabulous at a party yeah. and 200 friends like it, and you're very upset not to get 230. <laughs> um, am I less popular than I was? Um, at the same time, people crave human um, interaction. We yeah. do as humans. And so the museums have been quite big beneficiaries of this. And equally, at the time when people tend to live in smaller and smaller spaces, flats are getting course, yeah. smaller, one's home, people's homes. We live in smaller spaces than our grandparents did. Um, people rather love the idea of going to the V&A and where there's big spaces yeah. and big cafes and restaurants and free exhibitions and big courtyards where you can sit outside and sunbathe if you want and, and, and where you can have cups of coffee and then you can go and see this yeah. exhibition or, or that. The Pink Floyd show, which is on at the moment, will end up with 420,000 visitors. Well, this is a lot of people paying £17 each yeah. to come and see this communal activity of sharing feelings that people have, nostalgic and warm, toward the zeitgeist interrogating importance <laughs> of Pink Floyd. Yeah, and and, and I so I so in a way, f f museum attendance, visitor numbers has been growing, mm -hmm. um, and and this is why, um, because I think people like to. Yeah, also, the standard of what's put on yeah. has improved. You know, the V&A, when I first, I wrote my um, 
university PhD in the National Art Library, which is inside the Victorian Albert Museum, because it, we, we lived in a flat around the corner and it was a quiet place where I could yeah. kind of work in silence and write my Cambridge um, dissertation. But um, only a million people used to visit the V&A in those days. Wow. And today we're just bubbling under four million. I think we probably will pass yeah. four million soon. And that, I think, tells you everything you need to know about... Absolutely. ...about, firstly, how the museums have reached out to people. The marketing and the and the, the offer is just generally far more welcoming. The Friday nights at the V&A have become one of the big pickup joints um, <laughs> unintentionally, which is the museum stays open late at night yeah. and it has bands and people playing music and... Uh, drinks, some of them free and some you can buy very inexpensively. And actually, it's become a place that single people um, rather like to gravitate because you can talk to people if yeah. you're looking for a partner of any sex and um, and w- without the same kind of embarrassment as talking to someone in a bar yeah. in, a, in a way. And also... I Why feel, is that? Because you've got an exhibit in front of you to talk about? Or, yes. Yeah. There can be a group of people standing in front of a piece of sculpture or you're walking along. and It's, it's just not so yeah. aggressive as approaching somebody in a bar, which sort of somehow signals that you fancy them from the word go. Yeah, of course. And also, don't you think it also says something good about you? If I was looking for a new girlfriend, I think that... To f- to I would much rather find somebody in a museum yeah. who was looking at a very interesting exhibition than to find somebody um, on um, Tinder. Yeah, quite right. You you never been a Tinder user, no? Of course not. I'm not um, on Tinder, no. <laughs> so now I'd like to ask you some kind of quick fire questions now, which we yeah. ask everybody. Who in the world of business do you most admire? Well, I greatly admired Cy Newhouse, who died, of course, um, last week. Yeah, uh, because he was a an extraordinary guy who um, understood both the business and the editorial side of, of of the business. Jonathan Newhouse, his cousin, who's I've worked with and for for um, a quarter of a century or more, has a lot of his um, mm. has a lot of his uncle in him. What do you think you'd be doing if you weren't, I suppose, in magazines or in indeed the museum world? What, what's your other great well, I passion? grew up in an insurance company, but I don't think I would have gone to do that. Could, could you have been a city boy? No, I couldn't have been a city boy because I don't think I would have been clever enough at or interested enough in the, in the, the movement of numbers on yeah. screens all day long. It, wouldn't, it, wouldn't be, it just isn't my kind of speed. I think I could have been a book publisher. I think I could have worked for the National Trust. Yeah. I think I could have been a hotelier, actually. Wow. I'd be rather fun to run a hotel. Yeah. I think I could have done that. <laughs> Yeah, and you, and of course you have your you're a novelist as well. You've got many successful novels. Is that very much a a kind of side project, or it might it now you're stepping away from the more the more active roles? Might you now take on? Well, I've written fourteen novels. Yeah, um, and um, I'm I really enjoyed writing them and love writing, and I've always found them to be a very interesting parallel part of my life. You know, when you're working in magazines which are fundamentally ephemeral, in the, mm-hmm. even though they're monthly, but they're ephemeral, um, it's it's quite satisfying to have a big shelf full of books and then they come out in other yeah. countries. Um, and they're a way of processing life and thoughts and mm. 
And and when you asked me if I did things that were mischievous, my books are rather are rather mischievous. Yeah. I mean, are the characters based on on recognizable people from your life and from your career? Well, I think very often they are. But but I don't. I think things are funny when you're writing fiction. You sometimes start off with a a slight feeling about a kind of character, okay. and you might even have a particular character in mind. But as you start to draw up that character they actually change into what you're writing because mm. you that their that the circumstances of their life are not going to be exactly the same of course. and they change and, yeah. then, and then the story leads them away so there's often a kind of canal of truth okay. uh, that there's that it starts with someone but then turns into something else and has anyone ever come up to you <laughs> spotting that canal of truth and said that's based on me, isn't it? Yes. And also people who've <laughs> complained that they're not in my books. Oh, okay. And that would I put them in the next one. But I don't do product placement. No, <laughs> naturally. What are you most proud of in your sprawling career, various titles and places? Well, I'm proud of the shelf full of books. And I'm very proud in our dining room. We have a house in Worcestershire. And in the dining room, we have, I have, all of the magazines that I've been involved with bound in different colours. And they go from floor to ceiling. So wow. World of Interiors well, is a, yellow. An edition of every single one, an issue of... Yes, wow. they're, they're, they're bound in sixes. Okay. And they go from roughly 1985. So you could pull out any, any, any copy from any time. Yes. You've got a copy of it, wow. Complete set of Vogue, complete set of Tatler, complete set of Wired, complete yeah. set of Hobbs. I mean, that's worth something in some ways. I don't know whether it's worth <laughs> anything at all, but it's worth it to me. Yeah. And, and they... And they and they look visually very good, and and I quite and I sometimes check on things and yeah. if I want to remember who shot a particular cover, or who who yeah. or, or sometimes your brain tricks you about the timing of certain events, and you can't quite remember the order quite, yeah. in which things happened. Must be very strong shelves then. Uh, they are rather strong. They magazines were, are surprisingly heavy, aren't they? they were when built they're with that in mind, okay. and they're not warping. No, good, good. And what has been your biggest regret or something you felt you failed on, perhaps? Well, I regret that I've been so full on all the time. This, that may sound a little bit strange, but actually there's a side to my character that loves and craves um, being on my own and a bit of silence and a bit of yeah. reflection and a bit of time to let one's brain sink. And I would adore to have lived in somewhere like Udaipur in India for three years or something yeah. and just wander around with no great purpose. And you without, can still do that, I'm sure. Well, I might do it yeah. without a great schedule all the time. Yeah. And what's your most treasured physical possession? Uh, photograph albums. Yeah. We've got about 35 of them, identical big ones. I get them made in Oxford. And, and, I, uh, and my job in the family is to keep them up to up to date, okay. which I do. So if we went to France last week, I would come back after the weekend yeah. or whatever it was, I would immediately get them on screen. I would mark the 10 that I, or 15 that I wanted. Um, they would be printed different sizes, some big, some medium, some small. I would have worked out the yeah. layout before I chose them. And then I would stick them in the following weekend and caption them. So they're always wow. up to date. And they're very, they're really, f I say so myself, they're rather fabulous. And when people come to stay, they love looking at them because you've got the Cambridge years, the Eton years, <laughs> the early life in London years, yeah. the flat sharing years, the first flat, second house, third child, kids being born every holiday. Everything is there. And it's interesting to see one's friends get older and older. <laughs>
What you're really doing is making a, a kind of magazine of your life there. Yes, it seems that's like very, it. very much what it's like. <laughs> Absolutely. What's your favourite piece of clothing? We, we, we like to ask this because we, we've got a fashion element to the Gentleman's Journal. Like I've got think. a couple of Anderson and Shepherd um, overcoats that I very Brilliant. much yeah. like. One of them, which is a new one that's blue, navy blue, is so heavy. Because when I went in there, I said I wanted a really heavy overcoat. I just had seen somebody wearing a very heavy overcoat. And when when it arrived and I put it on, I sort of shrunk <laughs> under the sheer weight of it. I can hardly walk along yeah. the street. Um, it's so heavy. And it makes you feel like a First World War officer or something yeah. swaggering about. I love that. It's Absolutely. very well made. Finally, what's your idea of happiness? My idea of happiness is on a beach with a very, very long view, or perhaps on a terrace above a beach with a yeah. very, very long view, in sunshine, wearing my holiday clothes of like swimming trunks and a linen shirt and yeah. a hat, um, writing um, with for two or three hours early in the morning and then going and swimming in salt water. That wow. would be my perfect day. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Nick. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight with more invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurs, raconteurs and tastemakers. But in the meantime, you can read more at thegentlemansjournal.com or follow us on Instagram if you're so inclined, at the Gents Journal. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you very, very soon.